0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising.
1: If you believe in a climate change, but don't take that into your portfolio management, I don't think you're satisfying your fiduciary duty. We only be able to make our portfolio sustainable for long term by making the whole world more sustainable.
0: This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. In early 2020, Harvard Business School convened financial industry experts, HBS alumni, and our faculty members for a conference entitled Risk, Opportunities, and Investment in the Era of Climate Change. The conference focused on the financial sector because equity, debt, and insurance will be heavily influenced by climate change, and we wanted to see how some leading companies were thinking about this. We also wanted to discuss how the financial sector is working with the companies in which they invest to learn and influence how they are addressing climate change. In this episode, we get both sides of the story from a leader of one of the largest pension funds in the world that changed its strategy to better account for climate change risks and opportunities. We'll hear from Hiro Mizuno, then Executive Managing Director and CIO of the Japanese Government Pension Investment Fund, or GPIF. In conversation with HBS faculty member Vikram Gandhi, Mr. Mizuno describes how his firm changed its investment approach by embracing the universal ownership model. That's the idea that funds as large as GPIF are managing so much money that they need to invest so broadly in index funds, private equity, and other securities that they essentially become universal owners of all companies. As a result, they have to pay attention to the whole market, not just to their portfolio. In that context, Mr. Mizuno discusses his decision to have his team and the asset managers they hire take a long-term view when making GPIF investment decisions. This includes incorporating climate risk and a number of other important environment, social, and governance, or ESG, factors. He discusses many challenges he faced in leading these changes, including his push for passive asset managers to change their business model in order to better align their incentives.
1: I think the uh, you know taking a climate one of the major ESG issues. We are trying to find a way to make our portfolio more sustainable because our fiduciary duty is to make a sustainable performance out of our portfolio. But four years ago, I really tried to think how we can do it. I majored in finance and I grew up in this industry. I did all the other studies for like, you know, CFA type of the qualification. There's no uh, tool we were taught how to hedge this type of systemic risk. When I asked all my peer CIOs four years ago, do you think climate change is a real risk to our portfolio? Almost everybody says yes. And then I asked my peers, that. so how are you hedging it? Nobody had an idea how to do it. We have been taught how to diversify a portfolio to hedge the risk of the capital market. But we never know how to hedge or how to uh prepare our portfolio this kind of huge systemic risk we don't know exactly how it affect each portfolio company or each portfolio holding so we need to think very differently two key concepts that we came up with about four years ago was one is universal ownership you know it is easier for gpf to convey this message because we own the capital markets. So we are owner of universe so we have to pay attention to what's happening to the market not only what's happening to the portfolio we own. But I must say, regardless of the size, as soon as you invest in the index, you are as a universal owner as ourselves. Even if you're a retail investor, as soon as you invest in a stock index, you own the universe because your performance is more dictated by what happened to the whole universe. What we have learned as the finance professional and what we are taught at the, uh, the, by the finance department of the business school is how to optimize the portfolio we own. But we never learned how to make the whole universe better. So the, uh, the concept of universal ownership is a one game changer. And the second key concept is the, uh, the cross-generational investment. You know, we are guardian of long-termism, and because the other pension fund managers, we are responsible for the long-term performance of the portfolio. But first year or two of my tenure here, I really struggled to have a constructive discussion on ESG, whether it's relevant to the performance or those kind of things. Is that against a fiduciary duty to integrate ESG into our portfolio construction? The major reason why we've never been able to agree on those debates is that everybody has a different time horizon when they came into that debate. One time when I was actually on the uh, panel discussion with the other PRI board members, I couldn't really, you know, figure out what kind of a time frame everybody has in their mind. So I asked the other panelists, what's your definition of long term? And uh, the answer ranged from three years to 100 years. And then, one time, when I was talking at the CFA Institute annual conference, I asked a young guy sitting in in the front row, what's your definition of long-term? And he is a young guy, he said, my boss told me, never think anything beyond three days. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I needed to change, you know, the definition, the uh, the vocabulary, to describe the real long-term time horizon. And uh, when I spoke to the, uh, the uh, Pope Francis at the Vatican, he used the cross-generational responsibility, and I said, wow, this is it. So ever since we started calling ourselves cross-generational investors, now we are in agreement. We are talking about 20, 30 years minimum. These actions I have taken is all about how to make sure we pay attention to what's happening to the universe, and also we're trying to optimize the performance for cross-generational time frame, Climate is uh, one of the ESG factors, which is most common. I mean, if we have very little resource. Everybody has a high expectation, like as an ultimate owner or principal investor, asset owner should step up to, to take responsibility. But in reality, asset owner, we have very little resource. One of the observations I totally agree is that we are underpaid. <laughs> <laughs> in this industry, s- Very strangely, who makes the most important decision paid the least, right? So uh, we just need to make sure that we pay attention to, but we don't have a resource. So what we did first is we asked all our incumbent asset managers, what do you think is the most material and also critical and relevant ESG factors to manage our portfolio? And the climate change and climate risk, the most popular one. So we said that we are going to hold you accountable. So make sure you integrate that into your investment and also the other, make sure you engage with the company and exercise proxy boarding accordingly. So uh, that's the, 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 behind, the background of all these actions. So if you understand what we are trying to achieve, we're trying to promote the long-termism in the capital market and make sure everybody in the investment chain take their own responsibility to solve those problems. Because if we fail to th- solve those problems, we're gonna get a huge hit.
2: So, here you mentioned the long-term, short-term, and Ron in the previous panel also mentioned that, which is, I remember, and I'm sure you all do too, when I was here at business school too, we were talking about long-term, short-term, and when I was here, it was how the Japanese are very long-term thinking, and the Americans are all short-term, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see that getting resolved? Because this is a topic which is constantly discussed. Shouldn't, as a passive manager, you have a new business model uh, in terms of pushing the passive managers to be more activist? And how does that, how do the economics there work?
1: Um, we needed to come up with a different strategy you know, for the active and the passive managers to pursue the same goal. And for the active, there's, they have a sort of natural conflict between their performance and their, this long-term sustainability because they need to uh, beat the market, they need to beat the competitor to remain as our active managers. So we decided not to push the, uh, the active manager on that front And in reality, they only own fewer number of the companies. So they can get deeper into that company in terms of analysis and engagement. But on the other hand, we cannot depend on active managers to put the system forward. So we decided to uh, work more closely with the passive managers who own the capital market or who own the whole equity market. We started asking the passive managers to become active. And when I first said that at the Milken conference, I only confused everybody saying like, you know, I want the passive managers to be active. What I meant was passive manager means managing portfolio passively. It doesn't mean not acting as an active owner. So what I tried to say was, we now expect the passive managers to still continue to manage portfolio passively, but we expect you to become active owner of the portfolio. And when it comes to the voting power, you know, the passive manager owns a lion's share of our voting power, and we want them to use it responsibly. So uh, for the passive managers, I said that, and uh, some of them pushed me back saying, we are not paid enough. The fee is too little, but come on, you actually had much bigger mandate. And the second is, I know you're making money by lending stock too, right? So- uh, <laughs> stop that too, I believe. I stopped that too, yeah. <laughs> But we stopped that too because I don't think it was consistent with the uh, long-term agenda. But also, we have been offering our passive manager come up with a new business model to pursue this the active ownership. We decompose the passive management into index selection, index building, or index composition, index tracking, and an active ownership. Index selection is not their job. It's not asset manager's responsibility. It's the asset owner's choice. An index composition, which is actually dictated what we ended up owning, not even made by the other uh, passive managers, it made by the index providers. But historically, this asset owner hasn't spent much time on with the uh, index providers. We spend much more time with the other uh, passive managers, although actual performance dictated by index provider's selection of the stock. So now we spend more and more time directly with the index providers. And the index tracking, I think it should be cost-free. We can create a machine to do it. But the active ownership, they can add a lot of value if they wish. So we suggested, if you come up with a new business model, you can prove you can add value through the active ownership. We pay you extra layer of fees. And after three years of uh, you know, uh, kind of waiting, so far, two passive managers came up with a new proposal which give us a new, you know, the other uh, screening process, KPI, and et cetera. We agree to pay them extra fee for their stewardship activity. I think the point is, if you just take it for granted, passive managers' fees this little, and also passive manager is not hiring enough people, I think you're not going to change the system. We no longer look for the, uh, the passive manager who provide the lowest tracking error at the lowest cost. We want the passive manager who are stepping up as the active owner.
2: A lot of, uh, a lot of discussion on um, carbon pricing. Um, we, have, we talked about that a little before the panel. But as an asset owner, what is your view on carbon pricing uh, and implementing basically a tax on externality? And how do you think about that and the impact on, its por- on your portfolio if we actually implement things which get us to the Paris Agreement?
1: Carbon taxation is a powerful tool, if it becomes a universal taxation. But if they, each country comes up with their own carbon pricing, carbon taxation, it will be very difficult. And uh, at the moment, it's not going to happen, unless you change your president. But. <laughs> But anyway, that the other, with the other US not supporting it, I don't think the other, you know, it's totally unrealistic for us to expect the other global carbon pricing will be implemented. I had a discussion with Warren Buffett two weeks ago on ESG issues, and he also argued that it shouldn't be investors' responsibility to take care of climate change. It should be done by the policymakers. And my argument against him is like, you know, as we cannot assume the market is always perfect, we cannot expect the perfect government either. The way I look at my fiduciary duty, and also the asset manager fiduciary duty, is if you don't believe in the climate change, that's a totally different—you know—you live in a different world. But if you believe in the climate change, but don't take that into your—you know—the portfolio management, I don't think you are satisfying your fiduciary duty. People just use the lack of the standardization as an excuse not to do it. But the, I think that's where the human intelligence comes in. Because if you have the perfect information set, if you still believe in the perfect market, the efficient market hypothesis, there's no way for you to make an extra return. So this is exactly the timing. Human wisdom can make a difference, can bridge that gap. Someday, the carbon taxation will be implemented and it would make everybody's job easier. But for the time being, I shouldn't expect that to happen. Uh, in uh, you know the foreseeable future, and I just cannot wait our asset manager, and our own you know portfolio managers to start thinking about it, and that's exactly what the other uh, humans should be able to just uh, you know the uh,
0: play our role.
2: Great. Let's uh, let's open this up for for questions. Let's start here, and we'll go this way. Yes, right here.
0: I'm an MBA and a retired consultant, and looked at this climate change issue for many years. And I think a key missing ingredient is leadership. So I applaud your leadership, and thank you for what you're doing. And the question is, you mentioned we can't have many different forms of carbon tax, or or I prefer to call it carbon fee and dividends, so that it goes back to the people and doesn't end up being a regressive tax. But who should offer the leadership to get the world united on this, should it be the UN? Should it be institutions like Harvard Business School, or, or what?
1: You know, this is exactly the point I discussed with Warren Buffett. You know, I don't think that we can expect one particular uh, actor or actress will solve the problem. Everybody has to take up their responsibility. Having said that, I attended the Davos, uh, you know, World Economic Forum this year, and uh, you know, there's a very little. Uh, sort of the uh, presence of the political leadership this year, but while there a lot of like a business, you know, the leaders step up to make the uh, you know the, uh, the promises or like a commitment on these climate issues. And uh, one of my challenge for the last, I mean, my ambition for the last 18 months is this is what we succeeded in Japan, but not outside of Japan, to make the uh, the ESG is a business buzzword. You know ESG started at the PRI as the uh, the technical jargon for investor but in Japan we intentionally promote ESG throughout the uh, the business community so in Japan everybody uses ESG you know starting from like uh, you know the uh, the consumers to uh, corporate executive of course investors over the last 18 months I worked very close with the Harvard business school and I also worked with the, the you know World Economic Forum trying to make it happen outside of Japan and I think this year Davos, I sensed, in a felt the sense of the achievement because the, at the opening remark, uh, Professor Schwab mentioned explicitly ESG in his remark. So that means now ESG become the universal, you know, the business buzzword. So one of the innovative part of the, uh, the SDGs is sort of the, uh, the realistic recognition that the, uh, we cannot, you know, just depend upon the policymaker to change the world. Some people argue changing the world is not my job. My argument is because of the universal ownership concept and the philosophy, we only be able to make our portfolio sustainable for long term by making the whole world more sustainable.
2: How are you then trying to bring the carbon down of the companies that you own? Is that again, but gets back to the passive managers or what's the strategy?
1: Well, the two the one is obviously as I said, we hold our asset manager accountable for their engagement and the proxy voting, right? So the, that's a way to indirectly you know, put the pressure on the company to transform their business model. And the second is, as we shift the uh, portfolio from the, uh, the conventional or traditional market cap weight index to the ESG index, we are effectively doing the uh, partial divestment of the company who doesn't perform well in the ESG and the climate, you know, the carbon uh, intensity. And the two new, uh, newest in ESG indices we you know, the invested last year was the, uh, the S&P Carbon Efficient Index. That basically, without divesting, in each industry, we extremely overweight the company who has the highest carbon efficiency, and we underweight quite significantly the company who has the least carbon efficiency to deliver the same service, right? Because I don't think like, you know, if there's some industries still exist, there's a reason for their existence because uh, some people need it. But the, we just need to promote the more, you know, the other uh, improvement of the carbon efficiency. So uh, we actually are trying to approach that through the, uh, the changing our indices uh, to put it. And every time we introduce a new indices, we ask our index provider to disclose their uh, scoring methodology. So the portfolio company, when they miss it, they understand exactly what they have to achieve. So that's more directly for us to affect the market. And the engagement actually has a powerful uh, impact. That
2: disclosure too is a kind of a first, right? I mean, most times people don't disclose how yeah, the indexes actually
1: That's right, that's right. And, uh, and also the R, you know, the uh, diagnosis of like a 3.5 degree is gonna remain as a litmus test because we have the most, most sizable
0: and the most diversified global portfolio. Right? That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time...
1: And physical climate risk is actually studying heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water, what that looks like and how that's going to impact the companies that you invest in, because companies ultimately create an economy, which ultimately creates a society. And so that's not limited to emissions. It's actually looking at your real estate and whether it's in a compromised position
0: or looking at your mortgages or your muni bonds. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising website, climaterising.hbs.edu.